The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Deuteronomy 8 this evening. That's on page 152 in the Pew Bible. Uh, If, like me, you forgot your Bible this evening, uh, thankfully have Pew Bibles. Uh, So it is page 152. Uh, Before I I get into the text, though, I I want us to to get some some context, uh, since we're jumping right into the middle of a book, uh, into the middle of a sermon, uh, actually. So uh, Moses' long sermon on the law uh, we, and we should, we should get some context uh, because it's important. Because if you take the text out of context, all you're left with is a con. Think about that. So, a couple of quick questions. Who's speaking? Moses is speaking. Uh, it's fun to remember that Moses is speaking. And when God called Moses, uh, he, he said, I, 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 I can't speak. And God said, I will be with you, uh, and I will give you the words to speak. So it is Moses speaking. Who is he speaking to? He's, or, whom is he speaking, or to whom is he speaking? Uh, Israel. And what's going on? They're about to enter the promised land. So Moses is speaking to Israel as they are about to enter the promised land. And please, please give your attention uh, to God's word. Uh, it is uh, what, what we're here for to listen to God's word. So Deuteronomy 8. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord your God swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God 
for the good land he has given you. Take care, lest you forget the Lord, your God, by not keeping his commandments, his rules, and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who led you out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God, and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Let's pray. Father, We desperately need to hear your word. Would you open our ears uh, so we might hear your word and be convicted of our sin and see the awesome, glorious grace given to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Do you ever feel burdened by people's expectations of you? Maybe it's employees or employers or your parents or your children. Uh, Or maybe it's just the burden of your imagination uh, of what culture expects of you or, or, or what your friends at church expect of someone like you. Maybe you're, you're burdened, actually, by people's low expectations of you, and, and you feel dismissed or undervalued, uh, or, you, or you just want to know what their expectations are. Uh, you consistently find people disappointed in you or upset in you, and you have no idea uh, why, because there are so many expectations that go unsaid. Uh, it's not hard for me to think of people or situations that frustrate me uh, like that. And I imagine the same thing is true for you. So, so stop and imagine with me. Uh, imagine what it would be like to be thrilled with someone's expectations of you. To, to be able to say, yes, that's exactly what you should require of me. Thank you. I would love to do it. Imagine that and what that would be like. No sighs, no eye rolls, no inner pain of being misunderstood or mistreated or undervalued, but rather a joyful, inspiring 
experience of people's expectations of you. By God's grace, our study of Deuteronomy 8 this evening should move us in that direction. Uh, For in Deuteronomy, uh, God makes his expectations of his people clear uh, through his servant Moses. It's revealed throughout this passage, uh, but it's actually right away in verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. What does God expect of you? God expects wholehearted, careful obedience from those who would live in his land. God, through Moses, is telling Israel that God expects his people to obey him. And and this is not a vague concept of obedience. There are lots of details given in Deuteronomy. There are lots of details given in Deuteronomy as to what God expects from his obedience. It's not like one of those vague online policy agreements that says, like, I have read, and then you click agree, and you usually don't actually read them. Uh, Well, if you're like me, you usually don't actually read them. It's not vague or or hidden uh, like that. God makes his expectations and his commands very clear. They go all the way from, like, large, big-picture laws, like, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, uh, to how you should teach children. Uh, It includes laws uh, about how you should treat financial matters uh, regarding interest, uh, what kind of things you're allowed to take uh, as a security for a loan. Uh, It includes instructions on how the Israelites should treat immigrants, saying that third and fourth generation Edomites and Egyptians uh, should be considered locals, uh, that they shouldn't be despised since Israel is Edom's relative uh, and uh, sojourned in Egypt. Uh, It is also uh, very careful and gives you lots of details about how to avoid assimilation. Uh, This is what's behind uh, Deuteronomy 14, where it says, Thou shalt not boil a kid in its mother's milk. Maybe you found one law that you're not tempted to disobey. Uh, I've never been tempted to boil a kid in its mother's milk. And it's it's not actually giving diet advice. Uh, It's saying don't assimilate with cultic uh, rituals or activities. And so obeying these laws, being careful to obey them, is also throughout Deuteronomy tied to the people's possession and enjoyment of life in the land. Obedience is clearly the priority. And in this passage, Moses is offering some warnings and some guidance about how to remain faithful to God's law, about how to overcome obstacles that get in our way. Uh, so, so we're going to go through Moses' words this evening in four sections. We're going to go through three remembers and one lest. Three remembers and one lest. So first, remember who you are. Verses 2 through 6 say, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart... 
that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. To support God's expectation of obedience, Moses commands them to remember who they are, that they are sons, that they are God's children. Verse 5, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord disciplines you. There there is something special about being a family. Uh, I I love children. I enjoy conversation with children. I I always have from a young age. Uh, But there's something special about my relationship with my daughter, uh, who we entered and who we welcomed into the world in March. Uh, There's something special about that. And the same is true with adopted children and with in-laws. I'm now intimately connected with my wife's family. I care about her sisters. I care what happens to them. We're connected. And and, and this is important because Moses reminds Israel to know in their heart that they are part of God's family. Now, what evidence is there for this? Well, one, God said it, so that that's good evidence. But what other evidence is this for this? It's a long-standing analogy, actually, a long-standing metaphor throughout the first five books of the Bible. Israel's described as Israel's Israel described as God's child, but here Moses reminds them specifically that God cared for them. He cared for them through the wilderness. He gave them daily bread. He preserved their clothes. He even preserved their feet through 40 years of desert hiking. God's love for Israel is pointed to by the fact that he cared for them, but it's actually much more than that. That is not the emphasis uh, in this passage about why we can see that Israel is God's son. Moses points to the fact that God intentionally put Israel through hardships. God intentionally put Israel through hardships and trials to them and to teach them. Just look at verses 2 and 3. God led them in the wilderness that he might know what was in their heart. He, he literally led them in circles for 40 years. The journey didn't have to take that long. But as a judgment on the rebellious generation, and as testing for their children, God kept them in the wilderness to know their hearts. And then look at verse 3. It says specifically, he let them hunger. He let them hunger that he might humble them and teach them to rely on all that proceeds from the mouth of God. What kind of father leads his child in circles and lets them hunger just to teach them and to test them? Well, a wise and loving one. Good parents don't have their children's comfort as their highest goal in parenting. If I had had my druthers, no medicine would have ever ever passed these lips, and I would have died. If there is a king, and he wants his kingdom to continue well under the reign of his son or his daughter, he he wants to train the child in such a way that they know that they are not the center of the universe. If he trains them by always giving them what they want, by never giving them difficulty, by never intentionally causing them challenges with which to grow, he'll be raising a tyrant and not a good future king. And if this is true with sinful humans, how much more is this relationship true for God? He is training his child through challenges like any father does. And notice what the main goal of his training is. 
in the passage. It is their heart. It is their humility, and it's their attentiveness to God's words. This shows us that obedience, and consequently disobedience, is not an issue of skills or habits that we do or do not have. It is not about the strengths and abilities that we have, but it is about the heart. This is, this is a needed reminder because it can be easy to think of God's expectations as hoops we need to jump through in order to get the good life. And this passage allows for none of that attitude. Obedience is unavoidably relational. In order to obey all the way, right away, every day, you need to trust the person who is giving you the commands. You cannot separate personal trust and following rules, which is why Moses calls on Israel to remember who they are in relation to their God. They are his child, cared for, and put through trials for testing and training to test their heart. The people also need, this is the second remember, to remember where they are going to be careful to obey God's word. They need to remember where they are going. Look look, look again at verses 6 through 10. It reminds them where they are going, what kind of land God is leading them to. God is giving his people a good land, and he's not content to leave it at that. He doesn't just say, I'm leading you to a good land. He doesn't even just say, I'm leading you to a land flowing with milk and honey. Or or another way to translate those words uh, can be fat and sap. So so God is not just content to say, I'm leading you to a land that's fat and sappy. Uh, He 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 even wants to say more uh, than that. Uh, Maybe you have to be an ancient Near Eastern Israelite to think fat and sap is like, oh. Yes. Uh, milk and honey uh, sounds sticky, but, but uh, fat and sap. But it was, is a picture of abundance. But he, he wants more than that. God goes into more details to describe the goodness of the land that he's bringing them to. It has multiple sources of water. It has many kinds of fruit, and it has valuable natural resources. This is a land where, where life will be much more than just subsistence or survival. It has rich materials to build a rich culture, engage in commerce, build things, bake things, and always, always stop to eat things. It's a great picture. Uh, For yourself, maybe imagine a a world full of, just imagine a world full of 10 cent a gallon gasoline and all you can eat Chick-fil-A. Or, or, or for others, others who might be here, imagine a world full of solar panels that are actually aesthetically pleasing and non-GMO kale and quinoa and freshly caught salmon. Either way, whatever you're trying to imagine, imagine just a great land brimming with life and brimming with potential. Not, not a Disney world, not an all-things-included retreat, but a land where your labors are fruitful and where there is no scarcity of any kind. And remembering where they are headed, God reminding them the kind of land that they are going to, is giving an important part of Moses' exhortation to them that they obey. First, it reminds them that God is faithful to his promises and true to his word. He told Abraham that he would give the land to his descendants, and he is. They are on the brink of taking the land. But second... It's important because these people 
need to know. If they're going to obey God, they need to know that their experience of desert is not all that there is. This generation grew up in the wilderness. They've lived on manna. They haven't tasted olive oil. They haven't eaten pomegranates. They don't know what it's like to have easy access to water, a bare necessity of life. Yet, as you look through the book of Deuteronomy, which is addressed to these people, you will see that there are many laws regarding agriculture and wealth. And they first heard these laws in the wilderness. And and so, part of Moses' exhortation for them to be careful to obey all that God has commanded them to and fearing the Lord, and walking in his ways, is to remind them that what surrounds them is not all that there is. There is more to life than their experience of desert. They are on their way to the promised land. Their time in the wilderness was purposeful. God had intents for it. He had purposes for it. And it was a blessing, but it was being trained. It was not their final destination. The wilderness training was meant to prepare them for the blessings of the promised land, where they must be careful to obey, to enjoy it. Remembering the goodness of the land God is giving them as an exhortation to obey leads us to the last of the three remembers. Remember who you are, remember where you are going, and lastly, Moses warns them to remember why they are here, or to remember how they got where they are. This is, this is explained in verses 11 to 18 in the passage, which is actually on page 153 of your Bible. In verses 11 to 18, God explains that to keep his commandments, to walk in his ways, and to fear him, God's people need to remember why they are there. God brought them out of the land of Egypt and guided them safely through the terrifying wilderness. He provided them with water and food in miraculous ways, ways that only the mighty creator could. And again, all of God's guidance and provision through the midst of difficulties, through the midst of trials, were for their good. All the trials were from the hand of a loving father to do them good in the end. So through God's provision, and because he is faithful to his promises, God is bringing them to the promised land and giving it to them. The wealth that they are about to receive is not because of their greatness. It's not because of their navigation skills at somehow getting through the wilderness on their own or reaching the right spot. And it's not because of their spotless track record, but because of God's faithfulness to his promises. God expects his people to obey and he encourages them to, and he encourages them to do this by remembering who they are remembering where they are going, and remembering why they are where they are, how they got there. There are the three, there are the three remembers. Remember who you are, where you're going, how you got here. Now for the lest. We see the lest several places. First in verses 11 to 12. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest, when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up 
and you forget the Lord your God. And then again in verse 17, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Lest, and then Moses warns Israel again, the consequence of forgetting in verses 19 and 20. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord your God makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. This shows us that we typically don't take forgetting seriously enough. It's it's a personal affront to God. Forgetting is the opposite of remembering. You can take that away tonight. Forgetting is the opposite of remembering. But the Lord and his ways... Forgetting the Lord in his ways, just like remembering the Lord in his ways, is not an issue of memory or intellectual weakness. Remembering is shown by obedience, just like forgetting is shown by disobedience. This is covenantal, personal, relational language. It's, it's not that God's warning them against being atheists. God's not warning them against being atheists or against forgetting who Yahweh is. The point is that their lives should show that they had forgotten him for all intents and purposes. Israel never, in all of its history, forgot Yahweh, forgot its Lord in an intellectual memory sort of way, or in an atheist sort of way, but their lives demonstrated that they didn't see him as relevant to their daily decisions. Rather, they would begin to find other things more relevant to their daily decision-making. And those things were their gods. And of course, a lot of this should sound familiar to how we live, but we'll get there. And Moses is warning them against this heinous amnesia, uh, against this personal denial, this rejection, this rebellion, and saying that it will not be tolerated and that they will perish like the other nations. Just like the nations that God will drive out before them, so too God will cause the Israel, his own son, to perish. So in summary, God expects careful, wholehearted obedience from his people, and so they should remember who they are, where they are going, and why they are there. Lest, if they forget God, in, in order that they not forget God, and they be full of themselves, and they turn from him, and come under God's judgment, and perish. Now, uh, it, if you know the story of Israel, and I, and I still remember uh, an image from when I was in Sunday school class in the old part of the building, uh, in fifth and sixth grade, uh, and the teacher drew a roller coaster on the board. 
uh, and said, this is the history of Israel. And of course, as middle schoolers, we liked roller coasters. Well, I didn't like roller coasters, but I tried to pretend because I thought I should like roller coasters. So we looked at the history of Israel, and if you know the history of Israel, a roller coaster is a little bit optimistic, I think, because uh, roller coasters have to go up. Uh, and a lot of Israel's history seems to be mostly on the down side. Uh, you can read the book of Judges uh, to remember this, or uh, any uh, of the Old Testament books, it seems. Even at high times, like David's reign, uh, you see uh, how that fell apart because David was not careful to forget uh, and forgot uh, the Lord uh, his God. They were tempted, tried, and they were almost always failing in Israel's history. And if you think God takes forgetting lightly, read the book of Jeremiah and the accounts of the destruction of Jerusalem. They were not careful to obey. They did boast in themselves. They were impressed with themselves. And God was faithful to his promises to bring judgment. And they perished. But God disciplined them like a son. And he graciously brought them into exile, preserving a remnant, and then brought them back to the promised land from exile. But this time, not as conquerors. It's a very different Israel that enters the promised land from the exile versus that enters the promised land from the exodus. They weren't going to a land of milk and honey, but they were servants of a pagan foreign overlord and were humbled. And even in this humbled state, Malachi's message at the end of the Old Testament shows us that they still forgot the God who loved them, the God who brought them out of Egypt, gave them a very good land, was patient with them, was patient with their rebellion for generations, and then disciplined them lovingly through the exile, showing his steadfast love by bringing them back into the land. What a God! Like, what steadfast, never-giving-up love. And they still forgot the Lord. And they rebelled, doing whatever they wanted, and Malachi talks about, with their marriages and with their money. What hope is there for this rebellious people to ever enjoy the promises of God? Certainly no hope in themselves but God, who had sworn by his own name and character to do them good and to prosper them, sent his only begotten son to the promised land, born by a young virgin in sketchy circumstances, in an animal stall, under the authority of brutal pagans. And Jesus lived the perfect life that Israel never could. He was careful to do all that his father commanded. He carefully feared him. He walked in all of his ways. He even committed Deuteronomy 8 to memory. Deuteronomy 8 is what Jesus quotes when he's tempted by the devil in the first temptation in the wilderness. But rather than being given a very good land, wealth, and peace, Jesus never had a place to call his own owned just the clothes on his back, and was hated by his own people for telling them that he was their savior. And this hate caused the people to turn Jesus, the only person who ever ever carefully obeyed all of the law, over to the Romans, 
over to the nations so that he might perish, just like a rebel against the nations. But that was not the worst part of it. His Father, whom Christ had always loved, loved and listened to throughout the whole of his life, poured out the cup of wrath that Israel's sins, that my sins, that your sins made. And God's justice struck down his own son, and he perished for our sin. But Jesus couldn't stay dead. His perishing had no power over him, because he was without sin. Jesus had done perfectly everything that God had expected. Jesus perfectly met God's expectations. And God is not an unjust boss or parent, or teacher, who seems to change the expectations as soon as you come close to meeting them. He is an all-just God. He makes his expectations clear, and he does not change. God doesn't shift standards to make you always feel like a failure. Jesus perfectly met God's expectations, and this was gloriously vindicated and declared as he rose again from the dead, as the first fruits of a new creation. And he commissioned his followers to go unto the ends of the earth and to make disciples and to teach them to observe all that he had commanded them. And then Christ ascended into heaven from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. What a glorious story. And, And if you confess your falling short of God's standards and put your faith in Christ's death on your behalf, you too can have Jesus' track record of meeting God's expectations. And so, in Christ, you can enjoy everlasting life with him. Hallelujah. What a Savior we have in Jesus. So, in light of this old, old story, how should we read this section of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament today? What's its message? We're not on the edge of the promised land. We live in very different circumstances. What is its message for us today? Its message for us today is that God expects us to obey him, to fear him, and to carefully walk in all of his ways. Every way, all the way, in every area of our life, every second of our life, God expects us to obey him. In Christ's teaching on the law, he makes this very clear. He says, I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill it. And Jesus even expands our understanding of this. It's not just do not commit adultery. Do not go and chase after another person's spouse. It's do not let one lustful thought, one illicit fantasy enter your mind. Rather than just do not kill. He says, he says don't hate. Don't, don't, don't even let that little fire inside of you come up that says, God shouldn't have made this person. And don't just not hate people, even do good to people. Actively pursue justice, actively pursue preserving life. And it's not just do not bear false witness, it's a command that all of our language should be used to build others up. You are commanded to say nothing unless it will actually help someone. And this embraces the whole diversity 
and intricacies in all of life that Jesus covered in his summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is not anti-law. He loves God's law. He is the true singer of Psalm 119, a love song to the law. And and as part of the Great Commission, he even echoes Moses' commands when he says that they should make disciples and teach them to observe all the things that he commanded them. And since Jesus is not anti-law, it makes sense that the New Testament is not anti-law and teaches us to obey. It teaches us that God expects us to obey. It teaches us that God expects us to obey him as an expression of our love for him in John 14, 21. It teaches us that God expects us to obey because before the foundation of the world, he chose us and loved us that we might be holy in Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. It teaches us that God expects us to obey because we are a people for his own possession and he has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light in 1 Peter 2, 9. It teaches us that God expects us to obey to persevere in making our calling and election sure in 2 Peter 2, 1.10. And it teaches us that God expects us to obey, to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling, for it is God who has worked within us. And he teaches us that God expects us to obey because Jesus is alive. And you have his Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that was with Christ, through every second of his life, through the cross, through the temptation in the wilderness. You have the Holy Spirit. And God expects us to obey because we know Jesus and because we are united to him. This is the argument of the book of Hebrews. If Israel was expected to obey because they received God's words and they saw fire and a cloud and heard a boom of God's voice, The author of Hebrews says, how much more will we be expected to obey because we have seen God himself in the flesh? He has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. God's expectations of us have been revealed in a person. And we must be careful to obey. And we must be careful to obey, it says, throughout Hebrews and throughout much of the New Testament in order to persevere and not wander into apostasy. Because you see, all these exhortations throughout all the New Testament are connected to what Jesus says when he warns us that on the last day there will be those who say, Lord, Lord. And he says, I never knew you. I, I want to pause for a second and give two quick words about listening to teaching on obedience. First, if you don't like preaching on obedience, ask yourself the question first, if you don't like it because you don't like it or because it's not the teaching of Scripture. Second, if you don't like preaching on obedience because you have been in a church or in a context that was legalistic, and you were lied to and beat up with the teaching that you can earn your salvation or that you need to meet Jesus halfway or that you need to add something to his work on your behalf to be right with God, if you've been hurt that way, then remember the context 
of this passage because without the text in context, you will be left with a con. These are God's people receiving the law. They are facing the promised land. And the Red Sea is behind them with, filled with the corpses of their enemies. God brought them out of Egypt with his might, and then he gives them the law. They are a rescued people who received this law. And this reminds us of our goal today. We want to grow to love God's expectations. We want his law to sound good to us. We want to feel loved by God when we hear his law, when he tells us to do something. Think about it. Think about how this works with parenting. Uh, Kevin DeYoung uses this analogy very well. Imagine a child who runs into a busy street, either in ignorance or in rebellion. What does the parent say to that child? Does he say, or she say, I love you. You'll never not be my child. I love you so much. Nothing will ever, you could do will ever make me not your father or not your mother. That's true. And that's what makes it possible that the child will even listen to the parent. Because they have that relationship of love. And that's true. It's not just a stranger yelling at them. It's their parent. But what would a parent say? It's a move. Come back. Don't run out into the street again. Laws can be an expression of love. God's law is a blessing for us, and he expects us to obey it. And we can follow the same steps that Israel should have. So to close, we need to remember who we are where we are going, and how we got here. Remember who you are. Remember that you are God's child. He has loved you since before you were born, since time began. He knows you perfectly, and he loves you. And and he is pleased by your efforts to follow him and obey him, knowing that you have a loving God, who is the almighty creator of the universe, should change how you interpret reality. You have the almighty God as your father. And Deuteronomy, and through Jesus, we know that God's goals are good. And we know what his goals are. His goals are a hearts to be revealed to us. That we would humbly walk with him. That we would know our need of him and that we would listen to his word. His goals for us are not our pleasure and our comfort. And knowing that, knowing what his goals are, can help us interpret life and persevere in following him. Second, we need to remember where we are going. We were designed for sinless eternity. And because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and future coming, we know that we're headed to the promised land of the new earth, where he will dwell with us and we will be like him. But even now, we have the Holy Spirit as a guarantor of the promise. We can grow in our obedience. What, Just like the Israelites, you need to know that what you are experiencing, your slavery to sin, life as a wilderness, as a desert of trials, temptations, and sufferings, is not 
all that there is. Life can be different. You need to know that in order to persevere in obeying. God is working in you. Imagine what life would be like without the itch and the urge to use pornography, without the itch and the urge to gossip, without the itch and the urge to greedily pursue your own life goals, financial health, without living like the world is all about you. The Holy Spirit lives in you, and God has equipped you to grow in godliness, even if that growth is just the first step of realizing that obeying him all the way, right away, every day, is beyond you without his help and calling out to him for his help. He is faithful. He will help you grow. And lastly, remember how you got here. To help you persevere in obedience, remember how you got here. Remember that there is nothing that you have that God didn't give you. And remember that you are his because he loved you with his irresistible love. There are no tryouts to enter God's people. He doesn't pick people who have exhibited potential. But rather, he loves unlovely sinners and makes them more like Jesus. And ultimately, how did we get here? We got here through Jesus Christ, our Lord, through his path of entering this world willingly in the incarnation, of living a life perfectly, of dying horrifically for us, and rising again victoriously. That is how we got where we are. And really, my last point is summarized in our closing hymn. So pay attention to it as you sing it. And I want to close with Psalm 19, the end of Psalm 19, as our prayer together. Let's pray. The rules of the Lord are true. Father, help us see that. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to rightly understand this word. Your law covers each and every second of our existence. Would you send us your spirit that we might individually be convicted of our sin and convicted of your mighty provision for us in Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to close with singing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, which hymn number I've forgotten. 252.